Pachango. to another edition of a what's this thing called a podcast why is it called a podcast because there used to be things called ipods but ipods no longer exist do they everybody's got their music in their phones so ipods came and went but podcasts remain and it's like uh i don't know it's like a strange sort of reference to a world that no longer exists the podcast many years hence people will say daddy why is it called a podcast and i'll say i don't know youngin they'll still be saying youngin in the future no doubt uh speaking of the future i ate too much split beef split pea soup the other night and we ate late and i lay in bed uh I had so much gas that I was waking myself up. So, and that's pretty bad because normally a little, a little natural gas is not a problem for this guy, but man. So anyway, I was lying there not sleeping and it occurred to me that there are a couple things that no one will ever do again. I think at least not on a large scale, things that are very common I don't think anyone's going to learn to type anymore. I don't know why you would. I took a typing class in high school and for years typing was was something that was very front and center in my consciousness, you know? Like I learned to touch type not looking at the keyboard and uh you know, I got okay at it and then as I became a writer and was doing graduate school and you know just writing 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 all the time I got better and better at touch typing and you know didn't need to look down at all and now it's second nature I don't even think about it but for 10 or 15 or 20 years I thought about it like every fucking day I thought about it and man if I had spent the time and energy uh learning to play piano that I learned to type I'd be fucking Chopin at this point but anyway, uh, no one's going to learn to type anymore. This, I, I'm, I, right now I'm transcribing some journals that I found from way back in the day. My first trip to India in 1986, I think it was. And I started typing and then I, I saw an article about uh, using voice recognition in Scrivener, this, this uh, writing program that I use. And I tried, I turned on the, the microphone, the, the, you know, whatever the dedicated key is and started talking and fuck, it's so accurate. It's incredibly accurate. Um, you know, it has trouble distinguishing between two fingers and too many fingers and toes and fingers. No, that would be too. Oh, oh, also, uh, you know, giving a finger to someone, um, the three twos and things like that. Um, but other than that, 
I mean, I was talking about Srinagar and Kashmir and Pushkar and Rajasthan, and it had, it just nailed it every time with these place names. Um, anyway, so why would anyone learn to type? Because now you just talk, talk to your phone, talk to your computer, whatever. And now with, you know, AI invading our, our, our reality uh, at a very rapid pace, it's just getting better and better all the time. So, okay, no one's going to learn to type anymore. That's, you know, that's back in the, that's like the crank engine in a car or something uh, in terms of antiquated skills. Now, another thing, this is a little more interesting, I think, is I don't think anyone's going to learn languages because even today, we've got the voice recognition software that, that knows exactly what you're saying. We've got translation apps that are instantaneous. At the moment, I guess they're all working with text. Um, but if voice to text is so accurate, why couldn't it just, you just talk to your phone and it speaks what you're saying in your native language in whatever language you select? And it can speak it in your voice because it takes samples of your voice and there are all these deep fake you know, phone calls, people calling someone's mother and saying, Mom, I'm in prison, help, send me money. And it turns out it wasn't them. They just sampled their voice and, and fucking created it. So all the technology exists. It's all there. And all that's waiting is for somebody to put it together into, you know, some sort of a headset or something where I speak in my native language and there's a little speaker that pumps it out immediately as I'm speaking in whatever language I select. Boom, done. No need to learn a foreign language. So throw that one on the trash heap of history. Unless I'm missing something, but I don't think so. Anyway, this episode is with John Colapinto, who is an awesome guy. And as I say to him, He's this guy. I, I feel like we would be really good friends if there were but world enough in time, if if we were living in the same town and, and could hang out and get a beer after work occasionally. Uh, I just love talking with this guy. Um, I love his energy. I love his intelligence. I love his humor. I love his open-mindedness, his fearlessness. Like, I mean, we talk about things that probably we should not have been talking about, but uh, that's what a good conversation is. Um, and we talked for a long time. I think we went about two hours. So uh, I hate to, to do this. I know I'm all sheepish about it, but uh, the first hour is free. Second hour is for people who support the podcast. Um, seriously, if I weren't paying the rent with this, uh, I wouldn't be doing this, but... Um, but it fucking works. I mean, there. I guess there are a lot of people who just need a nudge. Um, so if you're one of those people, consider this a nudge. <laughs> you'll, you'll get to the end of the free version. And if you want to hear the rest of it, uh, and also some, uh, some of the racier stuff I kind of cut out, uh, and it's all me. It's not John. He, he behaved himself, but I definitely, um, sort of stumbled into some swamps. And uh, so if you want to hear me sloshing around in there, that's for the, the paid subscribers. And honestly, it's not a tease. It's not about getting money. It's about feeling like people who are supporting the podcast five bucks a month are people who 
know me better and are far less likely to misinterpret something or take it out of context or, or just look to, you know, cancel me or get pissed off or whatever. I feel like we all know each other pretty well at this point. Um, I am speaking to you from my brand new elephant desk. And uh, they sent me the desk. And the deal was very simply that I would mention the desk on the podcast and, and on a social media post uh, if I like it. And I do like it. It is awesome. It's I'm standing up right now. It's got three programmable settings for different heights. I put it together yesterday. And what I really like about it is it's solid wood. It's not um, press board with some veneer on it. So you're breathing formaldehyde or whatever. It's a beautiful inch and a half, 30 by 71 slab of walnut. It is sweet. So uh, elephantdesk.com or desks. I'm not sure if it's plural or not. Um, elephantdesks.com. Yeah, very cool. Uh, if you're into stand-up desks, which I have, especially when I record the podcast, I, I feel like I have more energy when I'm standing. If I'm sitting, you know, just sort of, I feel compressed. Um, what else do I need to mention to you? The retreat, the Montana retreat, there's still a few spots open. Uh, check that out. There will be a link on this episode, um, show notes. Um, if you want to go directly, just type into your internet machine, budokon, B-U-D-O-K-O-N.com, uh, forward slash events. And you'll see the sex at dawn, uh, event with all the deets. Uh, we got some really cool people who have registered already. It's August 20th to 25th. The 20th and the 25th are travel days. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, as I've said before, it's a balanced thing. We've got some people, um, Cameron and Malane, our, our movement specialist. Cameron just got his black belt in Aikido, or not Aikido, in um, uh, Jiu-Jitsu. And uh, Malene just got her purple belt just a few days ago. So big congratulations to them for that. I think uh, Cameron has a black belt in, in other, at least one other martial art as well. And he developed his own yoga system. And he's just uh, incredibly physically, both of them are extremely physically embodied and uh, and strong and beautiful and and. And they're, they're not like bodybuilder strong. They look like normal people, but they can do incredible things. So that's very cool. Um, anyway, we're going to be doing movements, some martial arts stuff. Uh, Cameron's got this whole like moving like a chimpanzee and, or an ape and, and sort of like very animal uh, based movement. Um, they've got a dojo that's really sweet. Um, so there'll be that. And then, um, Anya will be doing uh, teaching dance, uh, a thing called uh, Contact Improv, I think. Um, contact Beyond Contact is a specific thing that she studied. And, uh, and I'll just be sitting around talking about, uh, you know, prehistoric fucking, basically. That's pretty much my thing. So if, you, uh, if that sounds good to you, come on down to Whitefish, Montana, August 20th to 25th. Hope to see you there. And what else? I've got a little post-it notes, what I have to mention. 
but it's mixed up with things like call the gravel guy and don't forget to, you know, call a dentist and, you know, get that. So I'm looking at my post-it notes. I really should color coordinate them so I don't talk to you about calling the gravel guy. Um, Amazon. If you do Amazon, uh, go to my uh, website, please, thatchrisryan.com. Scroll down, see the big Amazon thing right in the middle at the bottom. Click on that if you bookmark it and use that as your Amazon uh, link. A small percentage of whatever you spend comes to support the podcast at no extra cost to you. Yeah. And this does not mean that Amazon supports me in my opinions. It does not mean that Amazon has any fucking clue who I am. And if they did, that they would approve of my activities. Uh, It does not mean those things. It just means that they set up this system for reasons I frankly don't understand. Uh, But they did. And uh, so there you go. So it's a way for you to throw some money at me instead of Jeff. JB. All right. I guess that's about enough for me. Uh, we can get into this conversation with John. A little bit more about John. He He's a, a fantastic writer. He wrote for Rolling Stone back in the days. Uh, back in the day, he uh, published an article in Rolling Stone about a boy who was hurt, um, basically lost his penis in a circumcision accident and uh, was raised to think he was a girl and um, John met this, this person and, and wrote his story and uh, it became a New York times bestseller. The book is called as nature made him the boy who was raised as a girl. Um, Yeah. I won't tell you more about that story. It's uh, it's pretty intense. Um, And he's published a couple of novels about the author Uh, A Tale of Literary Envy and Theft, published in 2001, and a book that I just bought and have not read yet called Undone, which uh, he talks about in our conversation. It was rejected by 41 U.S. publishers and every publisher in Europe on the grounds that it was too challenging in its subject matter. (laughs) I love it. Um, But the Toronto Star called it an equally inventive but bolder novel than Colopinto's first. Uh, it's a noir novel that, uh, similar to um, Lolita, it, it gets into some forbidden, I mean, forbidden by some people, but other people would just say uh, challenging uh, subject matter, uh, which I applaud, as always. And the way John came to my attention was he wrote a book. I mean, he wrote an article in The New Yorker uh, way back when about the the Pinaha people in, in the upper Amazon, uh, who I've spoken about um, often. And um, it was a fantastic article. It's called The Interpreter, I think. It was about a linguist who was living with these people and, and discovering very unusual things about their language, which sort of challenged the unified general theory of language acquisition um, that was developed by Noam Chomsky. And um, so it sort of became a a huge controversy in the world of linguistics, which is all very interesting in that linguistics 
is a reflection of cognitive style, right? I mean, you've probably heard me talk about these people in the past. They, um, they're not interested in abstractions. They're very much in the here and now and um, appear to have made a collective decision not to get distracted by abstract ideas. And so they don't even have language for abstractions like color. They don't have a word for red. They say something is the color of blood or it's the color of the sun when it's setting or, you know, it's it's all associative. And they also don't have words for up and down and left and right and east and west. It's all toward the river, away from the river, you know, going where the monkeys are, going where the snakes are. It's all very concrete, um, fascinating people. Anyway, we talk about that as well, so I won't go on and on. John Colapinto, really interesting, cool dude. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and I hope life is going swimmingly for you out there, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. And if you want uh, to get the paid feed um, and you can't afford it, just send me an email and we'll hook you up. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's like those yoga classes where it's by donation, but they've got a suggested donation amount by the box. That's pretty much what I'm trying to do here. But if you want to just come in for free, you're most welcome. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Buy some of John's books. Buy an elephant desk. If you got money and you want a solid wood desk, they're pretty awesome. I will be uh, back soon. All right. I'm here with here in air quotes with uh, John Colopinto. I was thinking about you this morning as I woke up, um, which is not a thing I say to many men, John, but, uh, and I, I, I thought interestingly, you're like, you're at or near certainly in the top five on the list of people I don't know well, but feel a lot of affection toward. And like, I feel like we would be good buddies if we happen to live in the same town. I feel totally the same way. I, I the first time I met you. Yeah, no, it's so funny. <laughs> I mean, I can't even remember exactly how we met, but it was years ago. But I was like, I just know this guy. Uh, I, I've already, I've known him yeah. either in a prior life or that's the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> or he's like somebody I knew and I'm sort of not drawing the connect, but anyway, yes, right. no, it is. It is interesting. That's I awesome. think, I think when we met was that night we were, it was shortly after Sex at Dawn came out. I was riding the wave and I was in New York doing some media thing. And our mutual friend, Tony Paratet, uh, said, do you mind if I bring John Colapinto to have drinks with us tonight? And I was like, the New Yorker guy? Fuck yeah, of course. And you, <laughs> you showed up and we were somewhere in the like East Village, I think. And yep. we were in a booth, I remember, like a corner table, and you went to the bathroom, and the three of us this were is the best, a great time. This is the best prank I've ever pulled. I'm so glad it's now going to be semi-famous. <laughs> or actually famous. I mean, it would be super famous if this was like June. This is the first Kimmel's time I shows. met you. And so you go yep. to the bathroom, and we're probably two or three cocktails into the evening, and you come back with two beautiful young women under each arm. <laughs> And you're like, hey, girls, I just wanted to meet my friend Chris. And, da, da, da. and these women are laughing. And I was like, this dude is a player. Holy shit. I mean, Hugh Hefner wouldn't have pulled that off. <laughs> it was so amazing. And, you you know, 
to set that up even a little bit more um, to sort of make us a little more guilty in the eyes of um, maybe the female section of the audience. The three of us, us three guys have been sort of talking about women. You know, we've been just talking about what it's like and, you know, uh, I won't go further than that, but that's what we've been talking about. So I thought it would be very funny to come wandering back in with these ladies. And they were such incredibly good sports because I came out of the bathroom and I saw these two very attractive girls there. And I probably did need to be slightly drunk for this, although possibly not, which is another problem of mine. But anyway, I walked up to them and I said, I, I just basically explained the situation. I said, it would be the most incredible thing if I could come around the corner with you two under my And they knew exactly what it was about. Like they wanted to do it. They thought it was hilarious. Yeah. Fuck, that was awesome. That was so so, so cool. glad you reminded me of it. So, so that wasn't like the fourth or fifth uh, couple of women that you'd approach with this? No, no, it was that. <laughs> Lo and behold, it worked first time out. First, first yeah. stroke. These were my first. No rejections before that's the, that. That's the kind of thing. If it hadn't worked, you probably wouldn't have gone looking for another another group. Yeah, yeah totally. And I wouldn't have told you guys. I wouldn't have come back around the corner alone and said, "Hey, guys, you wouldn't believe the joke that didn't work." I just got humiliated by two young women. Definitely not. I had a kind of a similar experience once. I was. I was in Portugal with a friend of mine. It was his 30th birthday. <clears throat> and we were sitting in a cafe outside. And I was I was basically complaining about how women in Portugal weren't as attractive as women in Spain, which is where I had been living for a long time. And I had just moved to Portugal. And, and this beautiful woman walked by. And uh, he said like, oh my God, look at her. And I said, yeah, wow. But she's probably not Portuguese. She's like Brazilian or something. And he's like, dude, invite her to have a drink with us. It's my birthday. And I was like, you invite her. He's like, I don't speak Portuguese. And he said, oh no, you invite her, you invite her. Anyway, long, long story, but I did. I went up to her and I was like, hey, you know, here's the situation. It's my buddy's 30th birthday. And you're the most beautiful woman we've seen in Portugal in two days or whatever it was. And, and she laughed and she was like, well, I can't, I can't now, but I could meet you later at the restaurant at like eight o'clock in this rest of this bar. And I was like, seriously, she said, yeah, yeah. So she, she left and I told my, and I walked back to the table and my friend's like, Oh, you got shot down. And I was like, well, actually uh, she's going to meet us later. So she, she came later and she was dressed so sexy. And like, and I spent the next hour trying to figure out if she was a prostitute or not. Yes. And I didn't know. And I couldn't. And I, so I was trying to be like, uh, open, like I would, I don't, I'm not judging. Like, you know what I mean? Like if yeah. you, how much would it cost for you to be with my friend was basically what I was thinking, but yeah. I couldn't really ask because if she wasn't a prostitute, that would have been horribly insulting, right? And I didn't want to insult yes. her. We were having a nice time. She was really nice. So we just did this. I was, and, and I was the only one talking to her. My friend was scared. He was off, you know, talking with other people. Anyway, turns out we ended up being friends. And later she told me, she was like, I love it when guys don't know if I'm a prostitute or not. That turns me on so much. So I just oh, wanted wow. to yeah. keep you right there on the ledge. <laughs> and, and I was getting off on that, so, on your confusion so much. Like, oh, that's wow. funny as hell. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm such a babe in the woods. You know, I, I never, uh, like, 
that that someone could be a prostitute is like the last thing that's going to occur to me. Like, I'm just pathetic. Like, I don't know how long I can live in this city of escorts. You know, like, like I've, I've got a feeling 80% of the very beautiful women you see in the best restaurants here are in fact escorts. And, mm. and I've actually had reason to learn that that may actually be true for reasons that I can't actually go into publicly, but nothing involving me uh, being a customer, trust me. It's all just about through Tony. some friends. It's just Tony uh, and the hookers. Yeah. Uh, that I can't speak to. You know, I think Tony, yeah, you know, Tony doesn't have to pay for it, you know, Tone. Um, no, but they're, but they're under our noses here and perhaps there. Um, and I never know it. I never realize it. I mean, I could be very, very deep into a situation if I was single where I would suddenly be told, you know, to break out the wallet and I'd be like, you're kidding. I thought you just thought I was awesome. Yeah. I don't know. I just don't. And I think on some fundamental level, this is the Puritan in me. I've been accused lately or recently by someone of being like bizarrely Puritan and reactionary. Uh, you know, I don't, I'm not down with the idea of being able to be a prostitute. I think it's all, I'm, now this is, I'm not trying to be anti-sex worker. It's just that I can't, to me, it seems like the hardest job in the world, simply because well, you have to involve yourself with someone else's body. So I guess I think it's, I put it on a par maybe with nursing or something, you know, or being a physiotherapist, like having to involve yourself with someone else's sweat and odors. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's heroic. I just, I can never believe anyone does it. I guess that's the bottom line. Well, I mean, you know, I, I think you're right to equate it with nursing or massage therapist or, yes. you know, a veterinarian. I mean, a lot of people, I think everyone has individual um, variation in terms of how repulsive that stuff is. Some people don't mind it at all. Some people, I interviewed, do you know who Nina Hartley is? The porn star. I know the name. Why do I know that? I, I, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> porn star. That, <laughs> is that an I actress or something? Nina? Yeah, she's she's like one of the biggest porn stars from the 70s. And oh, she, yeah, absolutely. Right. Yes. And she was yep. in Boogie Nights, playing herself in Boogie Nights. Yep. Yeah. Great movie. Holy cow. Um, incredible. Anyway, I, I interviewed her years ago on the podcast, and she told the story about how she got into porn through nursing. Um, because she was a nurse, and she saw how much pain people were in, and she really enjoyed alleviating pain and giving pleasure to people. And she realized like a lot of the guys, you know, who she was uh, dealing with in, in the hospital, like it would, it would promote their healing and make them feel so much better to get a hand job or whatever. And she was like, I don't mind doing it. I'd like to do it. I would like making people feel better. That's why I became a nurse, you know? And from there, she, she was just like, well, I should just do this, you know, for a living. And um, yeah, so I think, I, I mean, I'm like, I'm like you in, in the respect that I'm also strangely naive about it, I think, like kind of uh, genetically something. First time I went to Bangkok, I was uh probably 27 or 28 and of course everyone knows bangkok is world famous sex you know and i was in a cafe and there were there were like three or four young women at a table and they kept looking at me and smiling and laughing and you know nudging each other and stuff and i was just like 
you know, wow, like these women are really friendly here in Bangkok and, you know, they must like white guys and, you know, it's, it's a, and it never occurred to me, you know, and to this day, I've spent years in Thailand. I've never been with a Thai girl because I could never wrap my head around, like, if she secretly doesn't want to be doing this, I, it would make me feel so disgusting. I have no problem with money. I have no problem paying for things or recognizing the cultural, you know, unfairness that I make this much money per day and she doesn't. And, you know, I've got no problem, no judgment. I just don't know. I don't want to find myself in an intimate situation with someone who doesn't want to be there. That would make me. Wow. That's well put. Yeah, no, that's, that's amazing. That actually cuts amazingly to the heart of exactly why. And I, I've never phrased it that way to myself before, but why it does seem like a relationship I couldn't, I mean, I've never entered into it. Actually, it was when I was, oh, I can't tell that story because he might listen. I do have a friend, I'll just put it this way, that, and I'm not going to situate the city or even time of my life, but it's um, he was having a celebratory moment and I was out of our shared domicile. I came home early and there was an incredible looking young woman in our living room. Um, with sort of like a matte white um, makeup on her face and peroxided white hair and very dramatically painted eyes, very, very young, wearing very little clothing. And I came in and I, I, don't, I didn't know where my friend was. I almost said his name, called out to him. He was upset. He came down just embarrassed out of his mind. He, and he had been complaining. He didn't have a girlfriend at that point. And lo and behold, he, the poor guy, you know, thinking that I wasn't going to be home, had gone and, you know, hired a young lady to be with him. And he was just covered in confusion and mortification and mm. so embarrassed. And I felt bad for him. Um, but that's the closest that I've sort of come to that situation. Although I do then have to say that it was so funny because doing what I tend to do in any social situation, which is try to fall into a normal conversation, I sort of started to converse normally with this young girl. And I can't remember exactly, I don't, I don't know if I got her name, but anyway, it had to have been a week later that I was walking in in this particular part of the city where there was a lot of these young women. And you're going to think this is made up. And I was with my girlfriend. And the girl, the very one, was sh- shouted out to me, John, hi, John. Because I had told her my name. Hi, John. And that also speaks to the fact that I got to say, this girl was definitely underage and definitely inexperienced. I mean, who, what, what working girl would actually do that? So that really spoke to the naivete that I absolutely know she had. And my, the, the girlfriend that I described as then is, is now my wife. And if she was here, she could corroborate this story, which sounds like it has to be bullshit. It literally happened. Hi, John. And Don was like, what the? What the fuck? Anyway, was she that took some explaining. Was she wearing the whole the whole? Get oh, up? she was in the whole because she was working. Oh, I, I, yeah, yeah. She was literally oh, working, and the girls. Wow. Yeah, I didn't set that up as well as I could have. It, it's like um, it was a notorious part of of the city I was living in, right. and they were lined up where they lined right. up, and um, yeah, no, she called out like, and all of her working girlfriends were like kind of looking and see, and it was just a, a ridiculous moment. John Colapinto, the first time you came to my awareness was the fantastic article that you wrote about the Pinaha people in the Amazon basin. And I don't know if you and I have ever really spoken about that. I feel like we always jump 
like that's in the front of my mind, but we always jump into other stuff. Um, so I'd like to just like plant a flag. I'd like to talk to you about the experience of of going there and researching that and and writing it because yeah. that article was so pivotal in my own education and and in writing Sex at Dawn and like every my sort of intellectual development that was very important. Um, and I also want to talk to you about if you're willing. I mean, maybe you don't want to get into this stuff, but I feel like you're uniquely qualified to discuss the. JK Rowling trans I mean you know because another yeah. book you wrote is was 10 years ahead of all this you know that at right. least so yeah. those are two things I'd yeah. like to talk about but every everything else God knows where we're going to get in this conversation right no those are great things to talk about I mean um it's fun I mean lately I, I'm actually sort of in that old prostitute stage of of the journalistic career where I seem to do nothing except talk to very interesting people about old stories that I did. So the U, these UK filmmakers just had me talking about Bob Guccione because I did a profile of him for Rolling Stone years ago, mm. shortly before he died. Um, and I have been doing some stuff about As Nature Made Him, which is that that kid that was sex changed uh, in infancy, which we'll, we'll get to. Um, and then the Peter Han, you know, and that, that linguistic story uh, does crop up ama an amazing amount. I mean, it's, mm. it's nice when you write a magazine story that could, you know, just become fish wrap, but, but it doesn't quite. So people tend to remember that one. And I do, I must now boast that I remember at the time it was sort of, I was kind of new to this whole idea of them counting the number of clicks that a story got, but my editor phoned me very excitedly to say that it was getting, it was just like off the graph, off the charts, the number of clicks that more than any other story that it was getting and so on. She also said that she would quit journalism if, um, if it didn't win a national magazine award, it didn't. Um, and she's no longer at the New Yorker. So I don't know if it's, that's a connection. Um, uh, no, she, she left for other reasons. That story was amazing. Um, you know, it, yeah, it took me just to orientate your listeners if they're still with us. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a story about a very remote tribe in the Amazon. Very, very small numbers of them left, like just a few hundred, I think, or something. I mean, it was just a tiny number of them. And they had sort of withdrawn their whole sort of defining characteristic was sort of the degree to which they rejected anything cultural outside of their tribe. And that was sort of yeah, critical to why I was writing the story about a, a specific aspect of their language. They had not; they were monolingual. They had not taken on any other languages, and so on. And it seemed like maybe their language was kind of a snapshot of of human communication, spoken communication at an earlier time in history, uh, in its development. So that was sort of the idea to to go there and, and explore all of this. Also, the whole Noam Chomsky controversy about whether or not there's a, a universal grammar. These, these people seem to defy that rule. But I mean, for me, what was so amazing, just kind of on a journalistic level, was to go that deep into the Amazon. And I remember I was traveling with actually a young Chomsky and a guy named Tecumseh Fitch, who's a wonderful writer mm, and, and yeah. um, scholar of language. He's written a beautiful book about the evolution of language. And I didn't even know Tecumseh was such a big deal at the time, although I should have. I think he was at like MIT at that point. He was from Harvard originally. But, um, you know, it was interesting because 
on the we flew down to this city Porto Veio. I'm going to forget what it was called. I think it was Porto Veio in sort of northern part of Brazil, which is where we met with this wonderful linguist, um, Dan Dan Everett, uh, missionary turned linguist. It's an amazing story. But anyway, um, we were we were then going to have to take a float plane deep into the jungle. This was incidentally not like when people do an environmentally minded tour of the Amazon with a large group of people and it's all very safe and figured like we were flying in and then the float plane was going to fly away and leave us for a, a week uh, with no way to get out of there if anything went sideways and things sometimes do with that tribe. But um and I, and I knew that it was a little dodgy when Tecumseh, who had been all over the world, he had studied a lot of animal vocal sounds. So he'd gone into jungles and so on. On the night before, he told me that he had like uh, written his will uh, like before coming to Brazil. I was like, what are you talking about? He said, well, I mean, just in case we don't make it out. I said, what? He said, oh, well, no. he said, John, we're, we're doing something now very unusual and rare and like most people don't ever do it. And I sort of put it together. I went, yeah, the whole sort of premise of this story is that this linguist had been a missionary with his wife and their whole claim to fame was that they went where nobody else went and learned a language that nobody else could learn. And that really does mean we're going into really untrampled ground here. I also was a guy who had had a blood clot in his leg, a DVT a couple of years before. I wasn't supposed to fly too much. I could be prone to getting another blood clot. Those can kill you if they become a pulmonary embolism. It was a 32 hours of flying to get to this place because we I had to fly to Sao Paulo and then various flights up to get to it. So in other words, I had put myself at strong risk for a new DVT, for a new mm. blood clot because my legs were crammed on these flights. Real risk for DVT doing that. And th- so then I realized, oh, yeah, then I'm going to fly into the jungle and the float plane's going to fly away and just leave me there. I better not develop a deep vein thrombosis because I'm going to be possibly dead meat. Um, so these were all the fears that I had going in. Um, and, and it's funny, too, you know, as a journalist, you, you, you meet a lot of people and you always feel shyer than anybody suspects you're going to as a person that, you know, flies into situations that are unknown to them. But I felt a real kind of shyness about meeting, a, a, you know, fellow human beings that were so different than me that I was mm. told were going to be so very, very different from me. And um, what was interesting was that they were and they weren't. Uh, that's what was so wonderful about it. On, in, in some respects, as Dan said at one point, you know, they're still in the Stone Age. You know, this is a laptop computer I'm testing them with. Yes, in some ways, I could not get through to them with simple communications like trying to explain why I was wearing bug spray. One of them had asked Dan, why, why did he spray that on him? And and I said to Dan, oh, because I got Dan to translate. I said, Dan, can I let him know? Can I explain to him? He went, yeah, you can try. So I just went, I went, and I, and I did this like weaving motion in the air with the sound of a bug, and I made it land on my arm, and I slapped my arm. And he said, why did plane land on his arm? Um, <laughs> and then, uh, or maybe I didn't slap it the first time. I just might have gone and landed. He went, why did a plane land on his arm? And then I said, and then I showed that I slapped it. And he went, why did he hit himself? Does he not like himself? I mean, there was no, like, anyway, it was wacky and fascinating on that level. But then there was other things where um, we were watching, incredibly enough, we watched um, the Peter Jackson update of King Kong. And I apologize for the sirens. I can pause if you want. Could could you stop, stop them? 
Could you just yell out the window? Hey, I wish I'm broadcasting here. I live on a on a hospital route too, and sometimes we're lucky, but sometimes we're not. Um, yeah, no, we Dan because he's a, an amazing guy. Showed them a DVD of um, because he had incidentally built this this timbered house in the job. They lived on these incredibly. I don't want to use the word primitive because I think it's politically incorrect. They very simple platforms with no roofs and so on. They 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 were really close to nature, but Dan had a snake proof, bug proof building that he built that had a generator so he could show dvds and he showed them peter jackson's king kong so here's a stone age tribe watching the movie and they totally understood the movie there was a part where naomi watts is looking at the big king kong and one of them said he wants to marry her in other words he's because the the ape or the giant gorilla or whatever he's supposed to be is looking at her obviously with desire and lust and love. And they totally read it in the face. And then at certain points in the movie, I can't remember what it was, but they sort of looked at me like at funny parts and kind of smiled. They thought I was funny. They sort of picked up on this idea that I was amusing. And so they would kind of look to me when something funny happened. It was just, that was incredible. And then just on an intellectual level, everything I was learning about language and sounds that we make with our voices and how these uh, abstract thoughts in our heads are translated into air vibrations that we beam into each other's brains, like telepathic beams, um, that we do this thing. You know, I just had never really thought about how odd that was, but to hear Tecumseh and Dan, two very smart guys, but very down to earth guys talking about this was just spectacular. It was like being in a like a college course or something in linguistics. It was, it was just one of the greatest experiences. And then I got home, you know, and had to write the thing and then had that wonderful experience where you suddenly realize, yeah, I'm going to be dealing with these sort of complicated ideas about linguistics and Chomsky and this and that. But then the characters were just so huge. Dan was such a massive and fascinating guy you know, it had been this religious convert as a kid and became this evangelist and married this fellow religious nut, we'll call him. And off they go to the jungle to, you know, turn this tribe, you know, to convert this tribe, teach them Christianity. And Dan himself got converted by them. He left religion yeah. because he saw the way they lived. There was something about the way they lived that just, he just loved. And, and I think is relevant to sex at dawn and so on, definitely. I don't know if it was in your article or in uh, Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes, uh, Dan's yeah, memoir Dan's of his book, time yeah. there. Um, but there are some, some exchanges uh, between him and them when, when he's, they're sort of getting to know each other. And I remember they're just so charming and interesting. I remember there's one where, where they say to him, um, so when he's been proselytizing and, and they say to him like, so Dan, did you know this, this guy, Jesus? And he says, no, no, Jesus lived long ago. And they sort of consider that. And then they say, did your grandfather know Jesus? He says, no, no, this is long before my grandfather. And then they say, oh, okay, Dan, then we don't want to hear anything else about Jesus. Right. <laughs> like just shut the fuck up about this fiction, <laughs> fictional character. And and so I think one of the things that was so fascinating to me about your account and Dan's account of them is, I mean, obviously the whole prehistoric life and the 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 language thing is fascinating, 
But to me, what's even more fascinating is the cognitive implications of some of these linguistic characteristics that you guys talk about, like the fact that, like that they don't talk about. There's no, there are no kind of like reference uh, words, so they don't say that that berry is red. They say that berry is the color of the setting sun, or they don't say east. They say toward the river or away from the river. You know what I mean? So everything is, I don't know if you've heard of a book called the spell of the sensuous. It's very, very interesting book. I forget the name of the author. He's, he's based in, in Santa Fe, but um, his basic idea is that language, the origins of language words were themselves like uh, objectively present in the world. And, and what happened was that the reality of the objective world sort of got drained into language so that now we use words without knowing what they mean and without really feeling their resonance for the things that they refer to. And we're more and more lost in this abstract world of ideas and symbols and further and further away from what they, you know, their reference. And I felt like the Pinaha somehow saw the danger of that and just avoided it. So if you didn't know, if it was outside of your personal experience, uh, we don't give a shit about what you're talking about. Stop talking about it. You know? Um, Yes. Yes. They were, they, things had to be totally concrete and observable. Um, for them to feel that they existed so that when they saw a flickering candle, they would say that the flame was going in and out of existence, that their, their terminology for existence, they, they applied it to a candle flickering, going in and out of darkness. And yes, yeah, so they, they had this sort of concrete, their uh, use of language uh, approach to the world um, no, it's interesting what you're saying about language sort of deadening as we use it. I mean, poetry, I think we write it and we read it in order to keep language alive, to startle ourselves still with, with a reference to a table, to try to see it in some way where it's it's fresh and new to us, um, or concepts like love or sex, um, beauty. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I, I suppose, you know, it's funny, I talked about how the notion of the Pitahan is some sort of snapshot of language as it was evolving. What they did, to, what they now know about all languages, well, they knew it even, they've known it for a long time, but um, uh, it goes back to Sapir in the 1920s, but there is no such thing as a primitive language. There's no language that's less developed than any other. The, the, the language is unbelievably complicated. Uh, it's an incredibly complicated mental calculation, and it's an astonishingly complicated musco-skeletal uh, maneuver to create and and then to get it into someone's ears so that they can interpret it. It just you know once you're doing that, uh, you're a human being, and mm. so you're, you're doing what dogs and cats just can't do. Although they can do an incredible amount of communication with their growls and whines and mews and so on. But the thing that we can do is we make a sound that represents something in the world, and it's simply you know the smartest of animals can't do it. So we had a we actually had a very smart parakeet, startlingly so. Rudy he died last year, um, but Rudy was so smart that when we would forget to to put seeds in Rudy's cage, we were sitting in our living room, and the cage is actually in the kitchen. Rudy would fly in and go and, and circle there, and then fly back to her cage. She was like, "You idiots." 
feed me. So I thought, well, she's so smart and she spoke a lot of English. She could imitate us really well. So I thought, well, I'll just teach her the word seeds. There's no way that she can't. So every day when I would feed her, I would say seeds and I would just pour so that she would be able to say from her cage seeds. If we forgot, never happened, never going to happen. As I read up on animals um, and the smartest of animals, there is a woman that trains parrots that claims that the that her parrots do this. I, I, I don't know. I'd have to see real strong evidence. A lot of people doubt it because it would, she would have like the one parrot that does. But um, this idea of representing things in the world with a sound that you make is remarkable, you know? And to your point about the Peter Han, you know, that sort of language had this presence to them. And even so, even like, so if you've got a boat and you can make a sound for boat, the redness of the boat is like a concept that's kind of detached from the boat mm. in a weird way. We've blended, we've recursively put them together. We've put one idea inside another in a way that Dan, the whole sort of point of Dan's linguistic study of the Pitahan and what he said defied Chomsky and long linguistics was that they lacked this sort of one universal, which was recursive recursion in sentences, recursion of ideas. That's one idea fitting inside another, like a, like a Chinese or what are the Russian doll box or whatever the hell those things are. Um, and, you know, it, it's actually a recursive thing to say the red boat on the shore, because you are actually putting the idea of redness inside a sentence and putting it inside the boat somehow. So Dan had this way of parsing the way they spoke to make me and actual linguistic scholars understand that the Pitahan were doing something subtle that kind of removed those two things from separated them from each other in an interesting way. Yeah, it was, it was, and I must say, you know, it was very hard for me to understand these concepts, but um, I struggled through, I think it, it was fascinating stuff. There, you know, it occurs to me that virtually every religious and spiritual tradition is oriented toward the same thing, which is be here now, right? It's it's stop all the monkey talk in your head, be in the moment, experience the present moment, whether it's through your breathing or your lotus position or you know whatever it is you're doing to to pull attention to the here and the now. And reading about these people, it seems like their entire language and culture is is about preserving that thing that the rest of us have lost you know that yes being in the present so that's why they don't want to know they don't want to hear some abstraction that you heard from someone and someone heard from someone else they want to know you experienced this then i'm interested you didn't then stop it um yes you know and they're there i remember one and again I, I pardon me i don't remember if it was in your article or in the book it's all sort of blended together in my head but uh, some psychologists come in and they want to do tests, cognitive tests with the people. And maybe it was even guys in the group with you, they had laptops and they're like, okay, you know, let's see, we'll give you, you know, a piece of candy. If you can figure this out faster than the other guy, you know, and they would do these kind of games. And, and Dan said like, this isn't going to work. Like they're, they're not going to do this because the whole idea of someone winning and other people losing is offensive to them. It's like, yeah. well, yes. Steven Pinker says that that, you know, and Richard, Richard Dawkins say that, that that kind of competitiveness and me first 
attitude is universal to human nature. It's kind of like the linguistic thing with Noam Chomsky. And yeah. their existence disproves so many of these assumptions about the universality of certain human traits. It certainly seemed to, no question about it. I mean, one of, one of the funny things, I mean, I, I'm just remembering now as we flew in, because Dan had made these claims and they seemed so unusual, I thought, like, like he said that, for instance, they didn't have art. And I thought, wow, a, a people that doesn't make any representational stuff. And he had said to me, you know, boy, when I first was told by this missionary that I was going into the jungle to live with this tribe, I thought, oh, it's going to be amazing. I'm going to see all these necklaces and all that beaded stuff and face paints and so on. He said, and I come and they got nothing. They got like a couple of like stones sitting on their platform with like a little bit of leafage over top. So they don't get rained on too heavily and, and like no adornments, nothing and no art, no representation. And I, and I thought, come on, that it can't be, that can't be right. Well, sure enough, they did live in that totally stripped down way. But what worried me, because, you know, as a journalist, you always go in and you're thinking, what's going to happen when I see the thing that completely disproves what this guy's saying? And I realize he's a charlatan and I still have to write the story and I still have to hang with him for a week. <laughs> so we arrive, we land in this little float plane um, on a stretch of river that was barely wider than the wingspan. Like we come down over the canopy. I'm thinking, where are we landing? And we've been flying over thick, dense broccoli for an hour. And, and we sort of weasel and we worm in and then there's a little glint of river and we land in this thing and the, the Pitahan, which were up on this hillside waiting for us, they heard the plane coming. Within minutes of my hitting ground and helping get our supplies up to the house, a little boy runs out of the uh, jungle holding a beautifully carved balsa wood, looks like balsa wood, uh, float plane. It's the plane we've landed and he's made it and it's got a propeller. And I look at it and I go, that's art. Oh God, what am I going to say to Dan? Like, this is embarrassing. I go, uh, Dan, and, and Dan barely looks up. Dan's like struggling with some horrible, you know, complicated generator thing. And he goes, that'll be lying in the weeds in two minutes. His point being, yeah, they make that because they're in the now. They're excited and they're skilled and they're right. smart and they're artistic. So they've seen the plane, or maybe he was anticipating the plane. No, it would have been seeing the plane. It wouldn't be, they don't anticipate. So he would have seen the plane, been excited, made the plane. And I thought, there's no way it's going to be in the weeds. And that's a beautiful plane. That kid's going to want to play with that tomorrow. Right. It was in the weeds. Within like 10 minutes, just this broken piece. I took a photograph of it. I was like, I can't believe it. Like, and Dan... Dan, you couldn't catch Dan out. Like Dan had lived with these people for 30 years. He knew what he was talking about. And that incidentally is one of the beautiful moments of journalism, like where you just go, oh yeah, this, this guy's got it. You know, and it was beautiful how it fit his theory. It also, it, it, it was just sort of wonderful on so many levels because I didn't have to think of this tribe of people as being uninterested in representing their world. You know, they weren't stupid. They weren't uncultured it's it just it didn't fit their sort of worldview to keep these things as memorials and and to have them around you know the next time a plane claim came they could get excited again yeah. but be here now to your point right so so there, there's art but it's art like uh, sand painting is art right the whole point of it is it's here it's beautiful and the next minute we're on to something else yes absolutely yeah, yeah. You said when we first started talking, you said, uh, I, I expected them to be totally alien and they were and they weren't. 
So where, where did you, what kind of things happened that made you feel like, oh, we're, we're the same, even though our worlds are totally different. You know, the, definitely the looks that I was getting during the, the movie, like with the funny parts where they were sort of looking to me to see if I was getting the joke and enjoying the joke. Uh, that was crazy. Um, the, the, well, I mean, to be honest with you, the unexpected thing about these people was that their, their women were extremely attractive and across culturally, let's put it that way. Cause I just said something very, very uh, New York centric or something. Um, they were very attractive to me. They were very attractive to Dan. He had not been expecting that. Um, they were sort of like cute and sexy and they were, you know, they were not unaware of it, the girls, but they were very careful because one of the things that would happen was, and Dan had told me this, if you look with anything that looks like um, undue interest or intent at their women, they, the men might kill you. I thought, well, that would be bad. So talk about a prohibition on on being um, overtly uh, male gazy. Um but I guess I sent, I mean, I guess when I say something was bridging the gulf just around the whole male, female thing, um, mm. I would say that the the children, I mean, that was amazing. These little boys, maybe they were 10, 11, uh, playing in the river, uh, jumping off this tree and and like talking to me or trying to communicate with me, communicating their joy and their fun. Mm-hmm. And then they got me to go in the water. They wanted me to go. Mm-hmm. So they, they could definitely communicate. And it was, I mean, that was just, I don't know. It was, it was amazing. I mean, they, they could have been my son. It were they fascinated by you at all? Or, or were they just used to these people coming in from the sky and who couldn't talk, you know? Well, you know, I think they were not fascinated. I mean, it's interesting. They were told my one of the first thing they asked was what's what's his name in crooked head? Because that's what they called the English language was crooked head. Because any language that isn't their language is crooked. It's full of lies, it's full of distortions, it's full of inaccuracies. It's you, you just it's inferior, which was fun too, because so many linguists or missionaries came into their world over the last century, you know, they were going to be looking at this primitive language that was somehow not as good as English or whatever language, Portuguese and so on. And uh, that's exactly what the Peter Han thought of, of foreign languages to them. Yeah. Uh, but they asked what my name was in crooked head that they, uh, Dan told them and they tried to say it. And they sort of tossed it around. A few of them said it, and then they rejected it. And then they gave me the name of a tribe member who lived downriver. I never saw him, but they thought I looked like him mm. a little bit. So they just gave me a name. They didn't, re- I guess on that level, they didn't really care who I was, except only in as much as I looked like a Peter Han. Right. I was okay. Yeah. I get, I mean, that's the way I interpreted that. I don't know if they were, yeah, particularly interested, you know, because they the only question they asked was, what's his name in Crooked Head? And then they, they renamed me. <laughs> you ever read a book called Nisa? You ever, ever heard of that book? Nisa, no. N-I-S-A. It's a fascinating book. It, it's written by um, Marjorie Shostak, who was doing a PhD at Harvard in anthropology, probably in 66, 67, something like that. And uh, for her her doctoral research, she wanted to live with the the uh, Kung San Kung San, you know the exclamation oh, point. The, 
Yes. In the Botswana. And so she learned the language, I guess, at Harvard, there was someone who could teach her the language. And then she went and her idea was to, to write about, you know, this is like the first wave of women getting into anthropology and archeology. span And, you know, it had been so male dominated up until then. Um, and so she wanted to write about women's experience in this hunter gatherer uh, culture. And so she went there speaking the language fairly well, and she tried to interview women and the women were just like, who the fuck are you asking me about my sex life and, you know, childbirth and like, get the hell out of here. Forget it. So she was getting nowhere. And then finally she met a woman named Nisa who understood, who got it. It's like, okay, you're coming from this other world. You want to understand how we live and how we think because we're different from you and so on. And she was like, okay, I'm down. And so the, the, dissertation and later the book became about this one woman uh, rather than a sort of survey of lots of different women. And uh, it's such a beautiful book um, because I've written it down. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's organized in life stages. So it's childhood, adolescence, marriage, childbirth, death of parents, you know, Um, and I'm always reminded of it when, you know, someone says something like you were saying where it's like, okay, they're very different, but they're the same because, you know, obviously it's extremely different, but these passages of life, they're the same, you know, falling in love, falling out of love, the disappointment of a relationship that, that ends or changes and the, the pain of betrayal and, you know, the, the, the death of a child or the, the death of a parent, you know, like these things are universal. Yeah. And in so many ways, those are, you know, those are sort of the primary uh, elements of human life. The rest of it is like, okay, you know, it's important, but it's almost like that's the sauce and these are the, the meat and yes. potatoes in the stew, you know? Well, a couple of, a couple of, I don't know if I'm cutting you off. Let me, no, no. let me know, but. Well, just a couple of things, you know, that you said there sparked a memory for me, which I had actually not thought about since doing the story. When you mentioned that, that that author kind of wanted to live with the tribe. The weird thing was that I got back from that week in the, in the jungle and I realized I have to go back. It was like an addiction. It was like, I'd become a heroin addict. I, and I came back and I, you know, I, I said to my wife, we had, our son was six years old at the time and I was on fire. I said, mm. Look, Dan raised his kids in the jungle. He was a missionary with his wife. They, they had their kids there. And the kids who I met, you know, were now like American. They'd been through American college system and so on. But they said it was the best thing that ever happened to them. Of course, their perspective was insane on life and the world. And I said, we've got to get Johnny into the jungle. I said, and we've got the perfect reason to do this. I said, I'm going to pitch a book. I'm going to do a book about this and we're, I'm, I'm, we're going in. I got to get back in. And to my amazement, my wife who won't even camp, <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like she won't go on a camping trip. She was like, yeah, it sounds like we got to do this. Like she was totally game. Like, I don't know what I was giving off. Yeah. I've never explored this before. Like, so yeah, I get back and she's like totally down. And we go through this period of like weeks, maybe a couple of months where we're like, yeah, how would we do this? We can do this. We'll get them out of the school. You know, and this is a couple of Upper East Side New Yorkers. I mean, and I wanted 
I guess I wanted out of this elegant two-bedroom apartment on the Upper East Side, which I love, but I wanted out, man. I wanted back into that jungle. I want what I wanted, whatever I had tasted. You know, so it's funny you say, you know what, what was the same, what was different? There was enough the same that I felt like I could live with them and wanted to and wanted to learn from them. Um, and there was obviously so much different that I thought, you know, and different in good ways that I thought I've got to get back there to have more of whatever that is. So, yeah, I, I had totally forgotten that. And then, you know, it's funny, Dan wanted to write his own book, which was totally made sense. And he said, John, you know, can I, would you be okay to step off and like not expect? And I said, of course not, dude, it's your, it's your story. And, and to his great credit, he ended up doing what most people wouldn't do. He ended up writing a really good book, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which I didn't, you know, feel bad that he had gone ahead and done because uh, I would have written a, di- a very different thing from a different sort of the camera would have been pulled further back on his life and his wife and so on. But um, no, I wanted to go. I wanted to go back. I had not thought about that. I wanted to go back so badly that years later, when the New Yorker suggested a story about that acai berry from the Brazilian jungle, I agreed to do that story just to get back into the Amazon. And it was pretty great, but it was not the same thing. Right. It was not the same. I mean, I had one, a couple of days where I was on a, like a little tributary in a canoe um, and with actually with a guy from Whole Foods to, to hit their great credit, you know, he Whole Foods was thinking of taking on the acai uh, product and he wanted this, this cool old hippie. He was like one of the old hippies that still worked there. He was just awesome. We, we were just, you know, we were in the same state. And Tecumseh was like this, what we did, you know, basically what it is, is you get soft handed guys like us into the Brazilian jungle. And it's just in a weird way, it is kind of life-changing. What a cliche, but it, but it is, it's just astounding. It's so good. I often think that one of the few ways you can tell what is uh, naturally human versus cultural indoctrination is how quickly you become used to it. Mm. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, certain kinds of freedom. Uh, you, you, you're there for a day or two, and then you come back to normal life, and it's like, what the fuck is going on? I mean, there was a time in my life when I spent some time in sex clubs in Spain, which are just bars. But mm-hmm. there's a room in the back where people are having sex. Yeah, I hang out in those bar in in a club like that for a while, and then you go to a normal bar, and it's like, this is ridiculous. This is just like a festival of denial and delusion in this place, right? Everybody's yeah. looking for someone to fuck, but they're all pretending they're not. The music's so loud, nobody can talk. Whereas in the yeah. club, the music was quiet because people were talking. It's like. This is a fake version of something that it's so easy. And it's like, you know, I would have thought that like being in a club where, you know, a couple is fucking over on the sofa would be really weird. It's not. It's not weird at all. It's just like, oh, yeah, well, they they're into each other. So, you know, who cares? Wow. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm talking too much about my sex life in this. uh, I don't know what it is about you, John. (laughs) 
well, you just remember that prank that I pulled, you know, <laughs> and you think that I can actually do that. You're like, <laughs> yes, I'm talking to a sexual master. There's, there's uh, I mean, I'm really interested, you know, obviously I'm interested in sexuality. It's a lifelong fascination for me, but I'm also interested obviously in this sort of transcultural um, question. And so, for example, I tried to get information from anthropologists about situations in which anthropologists had had sex with the people they were studying. Of course it happens, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, but nobody sure. wants to talk about it. The, mo- the most I could get out of anyone was someone said, well, you know, in the sort of world of anthropology, it's well known that a couple of women got pregnant and had uh, babies with the people that they were studying. And, but I'm not even going to tell you their names because we just don't talk about it, which, you know, I understood, but there's a, a guy named Kenneth Good, who was a doctoral student of Napoleon Chagnon, uh, you know, famous, uh, for his studies of the, the Yanomami people. Oh yeah. And, uh, Kenneth Good had a it's it's a fascinating story because Napoleon Chagnon became famous by describing the Yanomami as extremely warlike um kind of the the you know the the counterpoint to Daniel Everett and the Pinaha he's describing the Yanomami as this incredibly brutal warlike horrible hobbesian you know uh, tribe and then it turns out that Chagnon was, in fact, triggering a lot of the violence that he reported by passing out machetes to one group and not the other group and causing resentment and asking people to name their their dead ancestors, knowing full well that that was a uh, you never spoke the name of of a dead person uh, that that would impact their soul in all sorts of negative ways, their spirit. And so he couldn't get them to to name their antecedents. So what he did was he went to each group and said, okay, well, name their antecedents, right? I, I'm not asking you to name yours, but, you know, who was his father and who was her mother, thereby, you know, creating resentment. And anyway, so Kenneth Good broke with him halfway through his doctoral thesis. Um, but the reason I'm mentioning this is he fell in love with a Yanomami woman, and they ended up as a couple and she came back to America with him and lived for uh, a time in Philadelphia. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Crazy. Like, That's insane. Like the wildest exchange student ever. Yes. And, and she ends yes. up in Philadelphia. I mean, come wow. on, come on. Wow. <laughs> Nuts. She didn't that last is, long. I think a year or two, and she's like, "Fuck this, man!" And she went back to Venezuela. You know, it's interesting. The the Pitahan famously could not really be removed from their culture without. Uh, I don't think anyone ever tried. Although one little girl, interestingly, I remember Dan telling me about a little girl that had had to be taken out very young because she had a health crisis. So she had had a little experience, like for was it a couple of months? I don't know, in a hospital in the, you know, uh, in, in, I don't know what Brazilian city, but 
it 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 made her different in the in the tribe. And in fact, I, I think Dan was telling that story because I think she was particularly good at helping him bridge the gap of the language right. as he was trying to learn the language because she had you know just had enough distancing from it. But when I try to picture any of those Peter Han that I met trying to live in Philadelphia, it's just unimaginable. It just couldn't. I, I pretty sure it wouldn't wouldn't work. Yeah. Well, they, it wouldn't because they would not learn the language. That was one of the things they were mm. totally resistant to all other cultures. They just would not learn stuff that they that wasn't theirs. It was crooked head. Everything was crooked head that wasn't them. Amazing, amazing people. Yeah. Yeah. There's a book called. Uh, sorry to keep mentioning books, but lots of this no, conversation resonates. There's a book called "It Play in the Fields of the Lord" by Peter Matheson. I, I have heard of that book, of course, famous, yeah. but haven't read it. He's a great writer. So many great books. Um, the Snow Leopard won the National Book Award. Um, yeah, he was one of the founders yeah, of yeah. the Paris Review. And turns out he was he was also a CIA informer uh, in the oh, 40s and 50s. He? He did not know that. Yeah, he was, wow. he was a, you know, very interesting. He was on the expedition where one of the Rockefellers was killed in Papua New Guinea you know, by a stone yep. age cri- tribe. Yeah. Anyway, th- this book is a novel and the, um, the premise is fascinating. It's, it's set in the Amazon jungle and there are these two guys who are uh, kind of roused about Vietnam vets. They've got a small plane, they fly around and smuggle drugs or arms or booze or whatever, and just like make a living. And uh, one of them's a Navajo. Uh, it was raised on the, on the res and the other's a New York Jew. Uh, played in the movie by uh, Tom Waits. And uh, yeah, Yeah. the movie's fascinating cast. Uh, Daryl Hannah, Kathy Bates, John Lithgow, like crazy, crazy cast. Um, Anyway, so, so they're, they're flying over the jungle and they're running out of fuel and they see a little landing strip and they land. And um, the local, uh, you know, strong man says, okay, well, we'll fill your gas tank, but I want you to do a favor for me first. Like, okay, what's the favor? Well, there's an uncontacted tribe 20 miles up the river. And right now there are Christian missionaries on their way up there to try to make contact with them. And the thing is, if they make contact, then the government's going to set aside all this land as a reserve area and logging and mining will be illegal. And I'm logging and mining the shit out of this place and I'm making a lot Uh of money. So I Uh want you to go and drop a bomb in the village, uh, this Indian village, and kill these people and disperse them into the jungle so there won't be anyone for the missionaries to contact. That's the favor you're going to do for me. Okay. So the two guys fly out just to reconnoiter and the village, there's a clearing, they find the clearing and all the Indians hear the plane coming and they all run into the jungle and they sort of fly low over this clearing. And as they're flying, this one uh, warrior runs out and fires an arrow at the airplane. And they're laughing like, yeah, right. You're going to shoot us down with an arrow, you idiot. And then they turn around and fly back to the village. And the next day they're supposed to go obliterate this tribe. That night they're getting drunk and the Tom Waits character goes to bed. By the way, this is all in the first 20 or 30 pages of the book. So I'm, I'm not <laughs> ruining. This is just setting up what happens, right? Yes. 
So, um, uh, yeah, Tom Waits goes to bed. The the Navajo guy, played by uh, an actor who I don't remember his name, but anyway, he's uh, he's getting drunk, and and then there's like no tequila left, and somebody it's two in the morning, and they're closing the bar, and everybody's asleep or lying on the floor, and somebody says to him, "Well, if you really want to get drunk, drink some of this," and he puts this glass of brown liquid on the table. And he knocks it back and it turns out it's ayahuasca. Oh, and so now he's tripping his face off, totally shit faced. And he keeps seeing this vision of that Indian guy running into the the field and firing an arrow at the airplane. And remember this guy was raised in the reservation, a broken culture. You know, he's, he's seen the whole thing when the whites show up and you know what happens. And, and he, he gets out, he goes out and he gets in the airplane. And he takes off and he flies toward the village and he's a mile or two away from the village. He jumps out of the airplane with a parachute, ditches the plane, lands in the jungle, takes off all his clothes, buries them under a rock and walks into the village naked. Oh, wow. Great. So he's essentially come from the future, right? So the rest of the book is how he tries to help them deal with what he knows is coming but they can't see it wow yeah wow. Fant- oh yeah i gotta read this clearly i mean what a setup yeah. you know yeah. what a yeah, concept fantastic. i mean it's yeah. it's time travel really you know it's yeah. just it's incredible yeah wow anyway I, I so, like, yeah that's sorry, a great plot the idea the idea of him also wanting to warn them of what's coming is kind of fantastic yeah yeah it, it, it does make me think a little bit of dan because dan sort of did that with the Peter Hahn in a, in a mm-hmm. weird way. He, um, yeah. Cause he, he just, he stopped the, you know, the missionary stuff. Well, he did, his wife kept it up. Yeah. Um, but he thought it was best to not, not bother them with that. And, you know, was, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess he went back to the stone age in a weird way. In an interesting well, way. In, in his book, he talks about how he went there, you know, in intending to convince them. And in the end they convinced him. Yeah, they converted him. It's, it's yeah. awesome. Yeah, they converted him. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I, I really, I mean, you are extraordinarily lucky to have had that experience. I mean, you know, I realized, I realized that it was, it was great. It was one of the great reasons that I was happy to be working for the New Yorker. You know, um, uh, it was uh, no, I don't know what other magazine would really send someone off on such a, a mission. I mean, especially since, you know, the, the sort of crux of the issue was, you know, is, is there a universal recursion in all language as Chomsky says there is, I mean, mm. you know, GQ might want an adventure story set there, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. but they're not going to want the recursion story. So, the, <laughs> yeah. and I, that's really what was so great about working for the New Yorker because you would go in there for that weird nugget, but they also, of course, wanted all of the surrounding right. adventure, human interest. And I mean, the best compliment I got on that story was, was really when um, Dorothy Wickenden, one of the senior editors there, said, you know, the way you ended up making that a whole story about marriage, because it really was kind of about mm. this missionary couple that splits up um, because of a, a difference in how they view the tribe and religion and so on. Um, yeah. I mean, she just loved that. It, it, that was kind of a layer of the story as well. You know, the, the, the most exciting stories you write are about more than one thing, obviously. And, and yeah, that was, that was a great one. That was a really fun one. And they give you the space 
to really, you know, to do that. It's not a photo essay. It's there's one photo at the beginning. Great photo. I don't know yes. if you took it or someone else took it. No, that would, they sent a ph- great photographer and whose name's escaping me, but yeah, he took yeah. such an amazing picture of Dan in the river, just his head above right. water and the guy in the canoe. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that the New Yorker it publishes stories that long on a regular basis anymore. I what mean, was that? Because like 5,000 words or something? Oh, it was, it was, it was, it was at least 8,000. It was really yeah, long. Right. It might even have been one of the ones that went to 10,000. Yeah. And back in those days, I was, I can talk like now is it, but it was sort of pre-digital uh, a little bit. Digital was happening, but it had not yet eroded publishing to the same degree. So there was still advertising pages and dollars being pumped in. You know, I was lucky enough to do a couple of stories. I did a story on medicinal leeches. It was the first story I ever did for them. The return of, you know, this medieval idea to, to high-tech operating rooms because they were used in microsurgeries, reattaching digits and so on, where you would want to drain the wounded area of certain toxins and poisons and so on that would build up. And the best way to do it, they discovered, was to attach leeches. But they were also discovering that leeches were good for certain arthritic pains and so on. Mm. So the New Yorker sends me to do this story. And that was probably 2005 when when the magazine was like still super healthy, um, not yet at all sort of eaten into. And it was it would have been like writing for the New Yorker in the 1960s during its fattest years in a funny way. I mean, they let me I think I went to 10,000 words on the leeches story. It was assigned at six. Mm. I kept finding out interesting stuff. We were in fact-checking practically, maybe not quite fact-checking, editing anyway, where I happened to mention to my editor, oh God, there's this clinic in Dusseldorf that's doing really interesting stuff with arthritis. She went, I just grab a plane, just, you know, head out there. I mean, now at magazines, you know, you have to beg to fly to Los Angeles instead of doing it as a phoner. You know, Mm. "Ah, could you maybe do it on the phone? Uh, you know, this was like, oh, hop, hop the plane and go to Dusseldorf. And, and it was yeah. way better to see stuff in person. Sure. So it was yeah. it was a really fat and wonderful time in publishing. Um, yeah. Are you, so st- I, are I you still very, working very for them or is that? Finished? I'm not. I mean, mostly because I, I've, I'm i doing a book, an, another book right now. So mm. I, I'm in effect trying not to return to magazines. Um, and partly, you know, I. It, it, that magazine and no magazine is quite what it was. It reads beautifully. It looks fantastic, but the culture is different now. I mean, you know, the, sure. there is a little more concern around word lengths and expenses and, and you know, the vibe is just correctness. Different. I mean, I, well, I'm not speaking for you. No, this, that's this super interesting. all me, but hey. I, I have been, a. I mean, I had the New Yorker delivered in Barcelona. I paid, you know, extra for that every week that pile them up. I would never throw one away that I hadn't read, even if it was from a year earlier, you know, Anya will tell you, I I'll have a stack of 50 New Yorkers in the van when we go camping. Um, but I've just gotten so annoyed with it. The, the, the cartoons are just dumb. It's just like, what are you doing? Who are you trying to impress with this? Like, well, it's, and know, a lot of, it's just all this, you know, Latin X, fuck you, Latin X. I've been to Mexico. Nobody says Latin X in Mexico. This is all just insular, uh, you know, Harvard, Princeton grads trying to impress each other. It, uh, I feel the same so- about NPR. It's like I used to love NPR and now I listen to it. And it's like, who are you talking to? 
I, I don't this get is it. What freaks, I know, but this is what, you know, I, I know just having worked in magazines for so long um, and so many different magazines that they they have to, in a way, respond to the zeitgeist and the changes in the culture. You know, I think I, at least oh, here I am saying they have to, I really am a magazine guy, aren't I? Cause why do they have to? <laughs> um, but, but they feel they do. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I, 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 I mean, this is part of why I'm very happy to not be in magazines right now because I, I couldn't conform to what I suspect I would have to conform to. Yeah. Um, or at least I don't want to be looking over my own shoulder too much. Now, having said that, when I was finishing my book about the voice, I was very sort of happy. It was during the Trump years. Everyone was enraged at everybody else and political correctness and all the rest of it. And I, I remember saying to my wife, gee, I'm kind of glad I'm writing this kind of science-y book about the voice. And then, of course, I realized I was going to have to write about the black voice, the gay voice, mm. men's and women's voices. I was wandering into every imaginable minefield. I really want accents. It was, you know, black English, the whole, it was all there. The voice of leadership, Obama versus Trump and so on. What I did discover was the reflexive tip of my fingers um, instinct to just write the way I used to write if I was writing about black voice, let's say. And when I say the way I used to write, I used to write kind of unconsciously as like a white guy that knew he ruled. I knew that whatever I said was right. Right. You know, I didn't have to think about it. Well, who's, who's, whose sensitivities do I have to be worried about? I mean, I'm yeah. a pretty liberal guy. I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just going to reflexively instinctually do the right thing because I've had, all, mm. I've been inculcated with all the right stuff. Right. You know, I found as I got granular that there was like a million and one ways in which I could just stop and say, take a deep breath and figure out whether or not you're actually saying something that's going to sound really fucking stupid or racist, even though you're not intending to be whoever intends to be. I guess what I'm saying is, and when I tiptoed through the male and female voice stuff, places where I kind of tried to observe the niceties were actually mind expanding for me and very good for me. Um, I'm just gonna, I just got to say that. I mean, I, and this is not a great anecdote because I'm not coming up with good examples, but there, there were examples where I was like, yeah, okay. I, I'm, you know, my, my kind of off the cuff, uh, you know, I know everything and I'm just a good guy and people will know it. That wasn't going to really cut it. Now with the New Yorker and NPR and other magazines, they may be, may be going too, bending over too far backwards. And, and maybe that's also because of hiring, you know, you're going to hire more women, more women of color, more, more trans people, more, and they're in the room. They're part of the conversation. So I was lucky enough quote unquote, to be in a room by myself wrestling mm. with the manuscript alone that would have to meet an editor's specifications. But there wasn't someone who's, you know, whose sensitivities I could injure that was sitting right beside me as we kicked around the ideas verbally in a, in a bull session in an editing you know, situation. Right. So I, I guess this is my way of, of kind of apologizing for the New Yorker and stating what I think is you know, my, my, how I pity them. I mean, how I, how painful it's got to be on an hour to hour, minute to minute basis there. I can't even imagine because they're you, wrestling with a huge sea change. Right. Right. And, and I mean, the New Yorker is a particularly potent um, example of this because of their history of having given voice or given a platform 
to so many prominent writers, many of whom now would be deplatformed. I, I mean, I don't know, did Norman Mailer publish stories? I mean, certainly uh, John Updike did. I was uh, going to say Updike did. I think Norman was deliberately kept out, of, that, out, out of the gates. He was, he was <laughs> not invited in. Pugilistic. Um, <laughs> yes. But yeah, I mean, you know, but Hemingway, example. you know, yeah. I mean, I, the, yeah. I, I guess the, the question is, I understand the, the pressures on the publishing world, but I also feel like, isn't there a value in, I mean, so when a, when a young black trans person is writing an article from their perspective, they don't need to worry about our perspective. They just write from their perspective and that's valuable. And that's why they're hired. Right. Yep. But because white men are seen as dominant in some sense, white men are expected to apologize for their perspective and be self-editing and self-correcting and, and self-censoring and trying to incorporate all these other perspectives into their perspective, which is kind of an artificial um, endeavor. You know, no, it's like, I, why not just write from your perspective and acknowledge right. that it's a partial vision of reality as yes. opposed to apologizing for it? Well, I guess I would say that you are inevitably, no matter how you strain to not do, you're going to be writing from your own perspective. As E.B. Right. White said in the Elements of Style, you know, writing is self-revelation, whether you want it to, to be or not. So that, yeah. I guess, you know, instead of you use the terms like self-editing or whatever, self-censoring, I would say, what about adjusting? You know, you literally, as the, as the sort of white cis guy, that's always been the, the, vo the voice, you know, what if you just become aware of adjusting certain easy phrases that leap to the end of your pen so, so readily, mm. but with a little bit of sensitivity to the fact that, wait, 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 we've kind of widened the the tent there's more people inside here now maybe or or we're trying to get other readers too the thing that you know martin amos said something interesting about writing for magazines he said um in the introduction to the moronic inferno where he was saying these essays were written for a number of different publications uh each of which has sort of a different in-house style and even mood and take he said you know you don't as a writer have to consciously change yourself you just kind of change according to what magazine you're writing for. Uh, In other words, writers are always doing this. They've always known how to do it. Everybody does it. Um, and, you know, so what Martin's saying is if you're writing for the Rolling Stone, you kind of know there's a looseness in the language. If it's for the New Yorker, there might be kind of a, a wry, distanced, ironical take that's a little different than it would be for GQ and so on. Right, right. So what am I saying? Writers are doing it all the time anyway. So now, it, and it's not self-editing, let's say. Maybe it's not self-censoring. It's just being, reading the room. Mm. So maybe what we need to do, all of us, is, is read the room. I mean, the, the, back in the day, you know, like when, it, um, when a writer would write for the New Yorker who, uh, I mean, well, it's probably true to this day. I should ask uh, an African-American writer of my acquaintance if he feels like he's doing something to his language, meeting a certain New Yorker take. Whiten it up a little. 
Yeah. You know, is that whitening up? Is that, does that feel that way? I don't know yeah. how I should ask that sometime, but yeah. I mean, these are all deep and difficult waters. You're certainly, um, you're not wrong to be suggesting that um, everybody's too hat up. Um, yeah. And, and, and that it's creating a product that maybe kind of uh, feels like it's grinding against its own gears in certain right. ways. Trying to please everyone. And I feel like one of the, one of the beauties of writing is um, writing to not please ev- everyone or anyone. Yes. Right. No, no, I mean, no. Christopher hey, Hitchens. Mailer, you... <laughs> yes. Two. You... Right, Christopher Hitchens and Norman Mailer. Those two would get along uh, beautifully, I think. You know, for Chris... years, I, I didn't read Norman for years because I was yeah. such a New Yorker writer that I sort of knew Norman was viewed with some suspicion, although I think David Remnick's a fan. But um so I sort of didn't read Norman. I, I, w- I was always reading New Yorker writers. I read Armies of the Night. Is that the name of it? The one? Mm, yeah. 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 I was just in a fever. It was like last year. I was like, oh my God, this is spectacular. It's so funny. It's so fabulous. It's so great. It's so not New Yorker. Right. Because it's so, he's so self-referential. He just doesn't give a shit. Up criticizing himself, yeah. like yeah. Just belittling himself and then aggrandizing himself. It's just all over the map in this fucking fabulous way. It's oh vital. God, I was a, oh. yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I why was I not reading him? Yeah. That's the thing that gets lost in all this, all this, you know, sort of tiptoeing around is vitality, right? Uh, great word. Um, so Christopher Hitchens, what I was going to say earlier, there's, there's some essay he wrote, or, or I don't know if it was an interview or whatever, but he said, one should always write posthumously. And thus ends the free version of this podcast episode. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you'd like to listen to another hour or so, please consider contributing to the podcast on Substack. Thank you very much. In the meantime, here is the beautiful, wonderful, brilliant Carsey Blanton, who is on tour. Check her website. CarseyBlanton.com. She's on tour coming to a funky little bar, restaurant near you, a venue near you. And she's not famous enough yet that it's a pain in the ass to go see her. It's just the sweet spot. It's just so cool. And the people who go to see her are awesome. I think she's in like up in the Northwest uh, somewhere. Um, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's the Midwest. I don't know. Whatever. She's on tour. She's always on tour. Uh, check her out, carcyblanton.com, reminding you that, you know, give that kiss, dance that dance, take that leap, because you're going to die one day. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say Headstone. I don't want to give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an animal, da 
doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation to the ground. 